here's the reality. Only five to 10% of all breast cancer on planet Earth is attributable to an inherited gene mutation. So if you let that sink in, the converse number, boom, now I've got this big fat 80 to 90%. And thankfully, what's in there is everything under your control. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving this special show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. On the show today, we are kicking off our Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign for 2020. All month long, you will be learning about the cause, the solutions, and the ways that you can reduce your risk, even if you have the dreaded breast cancer gene. We're talking about the steps that you can take to lower your risk so that you can think of that gene as a light switch and how you can flip that switch off. That is what we will be talking about. Let's beat breast cancer. It is our four-pronged approach to diet and lifestyle designed to reduce your risk of getting it. And when it comes to breast cancer, there are some things that are completely out of your control. That's just a fact. But in other cases, we can take that control right back. For as many as 90% of cases, as you heard at the top of the show, you can take back that control. That is what Dr. Christy Funk says. And she is on the show today. She has forgotten more about breast cancer than most of us will ever know. She has devoted her life to helping others in their fight and showing them a healthier path. And oh, what an interesting path it has been for her as well. Dr. Funk is steeped in science. She wraps herself in it. And she did not expect to find what she did as she began to do research for her best-selling book, Breasts, The Owner's Manual. But the studies that she unearthed, the knowledge, she says it is irrefutable and it led her down this new path, a healthier path, and one that could change the game forever when one out of every eight women in America will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. Now think about this for a second. If as many as 90% of the factors that cause breast cancer can be prevented, imagine how many fewer lives then would be lost. There would be far fewer empty seats at the dinner table because a loved one has passed away, and family reunions would be full with every family member there in attendance sharing the love. And this month is devoted to putting that power right back in your hands. And today we are going to start by learning about the factors that are in play 
for breast cancer. We're talking about environmental factors, food factors, genetics, age, and more, and most importantly, what we can do. On the show today, you're going to be hearing about red meat and processed meat, dairy and eggs, and how the soil that is used to produce them can also increase your risk of cancer. We're talking about the soil, not just that food itself. So today, let's all discover the steps that you can take to not become a statistic, the steps you can take to stay healthy, and the steps we can all take together to beat breast cancer. It is October and it is Let's Beat Breast Cancer Month here at the Physicians Committee. And joining me to discuss ways that we can take back control of this heinous disease, put the power of it right on our plate, is the author of Breasts, the Owner's Manual, and a friend of the show, the one and only Dr. Christy Funk. Dr. Funk, thank you so very much for joining us. Oh, Glamour Boy, thank you for having me here. Glamour, but I love it so much when you're, I mean, you, you just waste no time, like right out of the gate. Let's rip them. Yeah. You know, I love you know, it so much. I think it goes back to years ago when we first emailed about my coming on the show and it was something about like, oh, I got to do hair and makeup. You said, and yep. so I respond, okay, Glamour boy. <laughs> well, that's what happens when you have a wife that works in TV. Like, you know, she's like, the first thing I said when I'm, I'm going to do this show, she's like, well, we got to go get you some makeup. And when the wife says to do something, you do it. And you got a pink shirt. I'm loving your wife. She's spot what? on. I mean, imagine what you'd look like if you didn't do the H&M. <laughs> Oh man, you are just a national treasure. Okay, uh, here we go. Let's uh, let's go ahead and and get to uh, the heart of the topic here today. Breast cancer. It, it really is. It strikes so many. Give me the current statistics. How many uh, women right now will be diagnosed every year? Oh, yeah, there are about two hundred fifty thousand women diagnosed every year in the U.S. with invasive breast cancer. Another sixty thousand with in situ. But you know what? There's about twenty five hundred men diagnosed every every year with breast cancer, and about five hundred die. The reason is, in case you didn't know, we were all initially the greater sex. For the first six weeks in utero, we're all little tiny girl fetuses, and then around week six, that testosterone comes out and ruins everything. But in those little baby fetus boys, you already have made your nipples and your breast buds. So they just stick around and out for the rest of your life. But most men don't understand that that actually translates into potential breast cancer risk for them. So they largely ignore a new lump or pain, not thinking, well, it can't be cancer. So FYI, men do get breast cancer. Now, around the globe, over a million women are diagnosed every single year with invasive breast cancer. And while the death rate is going down 2.2% per year, every year since the 80s, where we had earlier detection and better treatments offered, the incidence is still going up teeny tiny. But since 2012, it's been going up 0.3% every single year. So we have a lot of uh, distance to cover to eradicate this disease from planet Earth. And... Um, I think we have a beat on how to do that, which we'll learn over our next few podcasts here. 
Indeed. Uh, we do have a, an idea of where to go with this. Um, and, and it's always so great to have you on the show because, you know, last year when we did the series, uh, we got so many emails from listeners and viewers who said, thank you so very much. You know, I feel so inspired now. I thought that my situation was hopeless, but, you know, thank you, Dr. Funk, for all of the information that you shared. So we will be getting into that and putting the power back in your hands, but let's talk about some of the things first. Let's get these out of the way. The uncontrollable factors, the things that we just, we have no control over. You just kind of have to throw your hands up and just let fate take its course. So what are some of those uncontrollable risk factors when it comes to breast cancer? I've been just going to give you the top three. So numero uno is being female, but believe me, who would want to do something about that? So but as it goes, and we kind of already hit on it, one in eight women will get breast cancer in her lifetime versus 1.3 in 100,000 men. So certainly being female is your greatest risk. Your second risk is aging. And I love to bring this stat to play because people think, okay, wait, I just heard you one in eight. That translates to about 12.5% risk of breast cancer. I should have it by Sunday. Like that just sounds super hot. But really a 12 and a half percentage risk is pulled out over an entire lifetime. So what I want to do is show you right here, right now, this slide. So what we're looking at is, okay, yeah, one in eight turns out is technically uh, not perfect division. So it's 12.8% lifetime risk, but it's pulled out over your lifetime such that if you're currently 20 years old, the chances of getting breast cancer by the time you're 30 are one in 1,479, okay, far cry from one in eight. But if you're 30, the chances between 30 and 40, one in 209. Between 40 and 50, one in 65. Between 50 and 60, one in 42 women will get breast cancer in that decade. Between 60 and 70, one in 28. And between 70 and 80, ding, 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 I want to highlight that. That is your highest risk decade in life to get breast cancers between 70 and 80 years old. Hence my slight pet peeve with people being told to stop mammography at age 74. Anyway, moving on. Uh, between 80 and 90, your risk is one in 33. And you know what? If you're living the life, whole food, plant-based style, why not be a centenarian? But the stats never go beyond 80. So there you have that. Now, the next biggest risk factor is family history. So why is it that doctors are so interested in family history? It's simply to try to gauge whether or not there could be an inherited genetic mutation from either mom or dad. Ooh, pet peeve of mine. Oh, there's some breast cancer. It's on my dad's side, so I was told it doesn't matter. Oh, really? Because last I checked, you were half your dad's DNA. So I totally get it, though. People think breasts, they just think mom, and they think mom feminine. They just don't. You don't think of it as actual genetics the way doctors do. So your BRCA or CHECK2 or PALB2 or any of these breast cancer elevating genetic risks can come easily from dad's side. So what I want all the viewers to do right now is think about your family tree and the cancers therein, both sides of the tree, first, second, and third generation counts, kind of above you, meaning grandma, great aunts and uncles, and below you, your children, your grandchildren, nieces, nephews. So you've got all those cancers in mind. The insurance approved list, so to speak, when your risk exceeds 10% for having an inherited mutation is as follows. And if you are on this list, you should strongly consider doing genetic testing. 
So the list is, um, if you have two relatives on the same side of the family tree with breast cancer prior to age 50 or ovarian cancer at any age, consider testing. If Jewish special, you're Ashkenazi Jewish, you only need one of the above, one breast cancer prior to 50 or ovarian at any age. Why is that? Because all comers, the BRCA or BRCA mutation is about one in 500 people. Just by being of Ashkenazi descent, it's one in 40. So you layer a little breast or ovarian cancer on top of that risk and boom, you've met criteria for testing. If you yourself have had breast cancer prior to menopause, the subtype called triple negative prior to age 60, or two primaries, not one, one breast cancer and then it recurs, but actually a whole new breast cancer, then you should consider testing. Any men in the family tree with breast cancer, obviously if there's already a known genetic mutation in someone with direct bloodline to you, we want to be testing. Pancreatic is so rare that if there's a pancreatic plus any ovarian or breast at any ages on the same side, test. And finally, just a whole lot of cancer going on, specifically in the breast, ovarian, pancreas, prostate, colorectal, gastric, uterine, and melanoma categories. Three or more of those, and you want to consider testing. It used to be cost prohibitive to do this if you didn't meet those strict criteria and insurance didn't say they were going to pay. Turns out once that one company lost its patents, competition happened, and now you can get a full testing of 84 genes for about 250 bucks. This one though, if you don't wanna leave the comfort of your own home, we have online, it's FDA approved, the only FDA approved kit to be mailed to you. You simply register it online, spit in the tube, send it back, and you get a full 30 gene analysis of your whether or not you have any of those genes. So. Here's what's interesting about the highest um, uncontrollable risks being female and aging, nothing you can do there, genetic mutations, nothing you can do, but what percentage of the population really has these genetic mutations that predispose to breast cancer? Most people would say like, I don't know, 50%, maybe 80, like isn't it all, like if you don't have the gene, the gene for it, if it's not in your family, you're really not at risk, right? Like. Hypertension, obesity, that's in my family. That's my problem, not breast. Oh, sorry to burst that bubble. But here's the reality. Only 5 to 10%, 5 to 10% of all breast cancer on planet Earth is attributable to an inherited gene mutation. So if you let that sink in, the converse number, 90 to 95% is due to what? Like if you can't blame the genetics, what can you blame? Well, I've heard about some people who do everything right. They're thin, they exercise, they eat well, they think well, they're zen out, they've been vegan since birth, like what? They still got breast cancer. I would say that's another outlier, like 5% tops. So now we're looking at a bell curve. We've got 5 to 10% here. I'll even give you 5 to 10% there, just bait, weird, can't explain it. Boom, now I've got this big, fat 80 to 90%. What's in there? And... Thankfully, what's in there is everything under your control. Everything that you eat or don't eat, do or don't do, think or don't think, choose and don't choose, goes into this big fat bell curve of moving you toward breast cancer or away from it. So we're really quite empowered once we understand and dive into what's in this big middle ground 
of under your control. And interestingly, when you really grasp onto those things you can control, you might just manipulate the uncontrollable. In other words, think of cancer causation in two separate ways. First of all, there's a cancer seed. And how does it form? We got a normal cell humming along, life is all dandy, you're 12 years old, you're 20 years old, you're 45 years old, and then boom, it gets hit by something. Maybe a UV ray uh, for skin cancer or cigarette smoke for lung cancer or I'm going to get to what, but for breast cancer. And now, boom, the cell mutates. It's a cancer cell, but it's one wimpy cell. Do you know how many cells are in a single one centimeter sugar cube or like a peanut M&M, which you shouldn't be eating, size of cancer? A billion. All right, so we're just talking about, boom, one cell got hit. All right, it's got a lot of work to do. It's like a sperm swimming upstream, right? You got like millions and only one is going to hit the egg. You got one seed with a lot of work to do. And the first thing a seed has to do is plant itself and get nutrients. And it is now the nutrients, the soil, the microenvironment of the tumor that either feeds and fuels it, come on, grow, become two, become four, become eight, and so on until you get to the billion, which will happen if left unchecked, if that soil is filled with all sorts of other carcinogens and feeders with estrogens and growth hormones and free radicals and inflammation and angiogenesis. So your little cancer seed can multiply and divide until about the size of the tip of a ballpoint pen. And then it's gonna die, unless it creates blood flow. Angio blood genesis creation. Not a book you missed out of your Bible. It's actually the sinister cancer cell's ability to like call new blood flow to it. I mean, what? But yes. And it requires a hormone messenger called VEGF, vascular endothelial G growth factor. See, VEGF. So that'll come into play later when we talk about how you mitigate the production of VEGF because then, boom, like a big shoe stepping on that blood vessel, it's gone. Sorry, cancer, you lose. But that's the deal. Microenvironment. Your carcinogen initiates it into a cancer seed, but the soil that that seed falls in, you control that baby. Like what is in that soil? And the greatest study on human nutrition ever done to date, the China study, actually concluded that it is tremendously more important, the power of nutrition is tremendously more important than the initiating dose of the carcinogen. In other words, the seed maker does not matter nearly as much as the soil and the fertilizer. So that's what I got, Chuck. Okay, so let me see if I can sum this all up. Essentially, what you're saying is we have the power then to kind of uh, starve that cancer cell based upon the fuel that we eat, that we consume ourselves. Is that basically what it boils down to? It does. And you know what? It's such a simple concept, but I don't know if people really think about it. Like, what did you think the cells in your body were going to feed off of, if not what you chew and swallow? They're not shopping at Vons or Amazon, like, <laughs> right? Like, they're, they're at the mercy of what 
little food constituents you give them to make their life. So now is it, so let's, let's look at a couple of things that bear this out to be actually true. So we'll go back to um, my slides here and we're going to look at some immigration thoughts that prove the point. If you look at the Japanese immigrants in Los Angeles and Hawaii um, from 1982 for the decade after, and then the Chinese actually in Hawaii after 1992, they developed breast cancer rates that were literally 100% higher than their Japanese and Chinese relatives still living in the homeland within a decade, okay? So we're not talking, oh yeah, four generations later. It gets actually worse as you look at subsequent generations. But even when they stayed in Asia, look what happened. In the United States, between 1990 and 2000, the death rate from breast cancer went down 15%. But in Japan, it skyrocketed. Mortality up 55% in one decade? What's going on? So. It helps to realize that when I, okay, the seed maker and then the soil and the growing and the, that's going to take, depending on the inherent biology of this breast cancer and your age and a few other factors between five and maybe even 10 or 15 years to manifest as a detectable thing in your breast, all right? So in other words, these cancers that these women dying of breast cancer in the early 90s, that cancer was starting in the late 70s and 80s. And what was happening in 70s is that the growing economics and increased affluence of Japan and Singapore and urban areas of China sparked westernized changes to their lifestyle and Asians started to chase our culture and as a result they caught our cancer. So the key to understanding, I mean, we can talk a little bit more about that too. What, what is the Western culture? In the 70s and 80s, women started entering the workforce in droves. They started, instead of tending to their children and making homemade meals um, and just leading lives that were more family-oriented and more active, they started entering the workforce in droves, leading largely sedentary and stressful lives, sending off that email stat, eating leftover pizza for lunch, and then uh, flying home, stopping by the takeout, just plop it on the table to pour themselves a glass of wine, sit on the couch, and watch their latest Netflix craze, right? <laughs> like, that's a lot of our culture. And in doing so, you are delaying childbearing, you're not nursing, you're eating foods that are heavily processed and pre-prepared. So, what this is doing is affecting way more than breast. I mean, it's affecting all of your cells and body, right? It's elevating blood pressure and cholesterol, increasing heart attacks and strokes and diabetes, obesity, Alzheimer's. It's leading to constipation. I mean, seriously, it's leading to a life that is a setup for illness. You're setting yourself up. But you can still live a life that involves working and delaying childbearing as long as you offset some of that stress with really healthy diet and lifestyle choices. So food is medicine. We're looking at this of all the things that you can control in your life. So we're talking exercise, alcohol, obesity, weight, hormone replacement therapy, environmental toxicities, and 
emotional stress, of all the things you have under your control. My heavily researched opinion is that the most important is what you eat. Why you do it like three to six times a day. And every time you do, the key to understanding this is to know that you're altering the following factors inside of you for better or for worse, depending on what's at the end of that fork. So something that is in the meat, dairy, and egg category is going to elevate estrogen levels, elevate the big daddy of all growth hormone, IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor, create blood vessel formation. We can now use this word freely. Angiogenesis, you know exactly what it means. It increases inflammation, creates immune system dysfunction, and allows for free radical formation. So free radicals are going to be present in your life and we're grateful for them. They do a lot of wonderful things like make you breathe. And if you cut yourself open, it brings inflammation to the tr trauma to help heal and repair it. So free radicals aren't all, all bad, but in excess, they create damage. And every time you eat, it's an oxidative stress battle. Even if your meal is quote unquote perfect by my terms, like a whole food plant-based delicious salad, it's a catabolic process to digest it. So you're in an oxidative stress battle. You need to have the only thing that quells the stress, the oxidants, is an antioxidant. And the only place you're getting that is from food. Oh, I'm sorry, is from plants, not just food, plants. So you need to realize, as many of you do, that inside plants are phyto, plant-based chemicals. Phytochemicals, which are... I think better term phytonutrients because chemicals just automatically sounds bad for you. But they are chemicals because, check this out. Look at these names. These are very like from a chemistry class, but I never learned it in any chem class, including OCHEM and PCHEM in medical school. Um, curcumin has turmeric. The, uh, or Sorry, turmeric has curcumin. Green tea has epigallocatechin gallate. Red wine and red grapes has, have resveratrol. Flax seeds, avocado have omega-3 fatty acids, the healthiest kind of monounsaturated fat. Berries have procyanidins. Soy has genistein. Tomatoes, lycopene. Apples, anthocyanidins. Oranges, limonene. Limonene has been shown in studies to have chemotherapy-like powers against breast cancer cells in your body. So we're talking about these phytonutrients because when you release them inside your bloodstream, they go coursing through your veins, saturating every cell in your body, and boom, now we're back to that anti-cancer microenvironment, the soil, into which no cancerous seed can survive. Or at least that's the plan, and that's what bears out in studies for the majority. Way, like when you compare people who eat a lot of plants versus those who eat a lot of animals, you can see in the manifestation of the diseases, cancer being the biggest one that we that I care about, breast cancer, but also, and even more so, your biggest killers, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, all manifest way more frequently in those whose soil is fed and fueled with the chemical products of eating meat, dairy, poultry, eggs. 
Well, let's let's talk about uh, meat specifically here. The the big ones, red meat, processed meat. I mean, those are the two that have been classified as carcinogenic by the World Health Organization. We do hear about them with so many other forms of cancer. Let's talk, obviously, here specifically about breast cancer. If a person is eating those, I mean, talk to me about the detriment that they're doing to themselves in terms of their breast cancer risk. Exactly. Let's talk about that. So IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1, is super useful. Um, I'm going to go back and show you some stuff. So IGF-1 in your body is, it has one mission in life. It screams at everything to grow, grow, grow. Super useful when you're a kid and needs to grow up, but you only get so tall and your hands only get so big. So what is IGF-1 doing in your body for the rest of your life? It turns out we we turn over a shocking 50 billion cells a day. So they need replacing. And thanks to IGF-1, they get replaced. So that's a super laborious thing to have to do all day. But your brain is smart. And your pituitary tells your liver how much IGF-1 to make. And then the IGF-1 binding proteins snatch that IGF-1 out of circulation um, when its job is done. So IGF-1 for your adult life is replacing all of those used up cells, so cell repair and rejuvenation, and it's also helping post-exercise muscles to recover, and it's protecting your brain cells. But once those tasks are complete, it's like the binding proteins are in proportion. So if you suddenly make yourself top-heavy here with way too much IGF-1, it doesn't know it's supposed to be quiet. It's just screaming at you to grow. Grow atherosclerotic plaque. Grow fat. Grow cancer into the liver, into the lungs, into the brain. Metastasize. Grow, grow, grow. And so that should panic you into thinking, how do I quell IGF-1? Well, it turns out the only real substantial way to elevate it is to consume animal fat and animal protein. And the automatic response, and this is a key sentence to remember, the automatic response inside your body, there's nothing you can do to stop it whenever you eat animal protein and animal fat, is to elevate IGF-1 beyond the body's natural needs for that level of IGF-1 to do its daily thing with your cells. Here's a study that proves the point. Published in 2014, this study looked at over 6,000 adults over the age of 50. They were followed for 18 years. And in those ages of 50 to 65, higher animal, definitely not plant protein that was compared, higher animal protein levels led to a 430% increase in all cancer death and a 7,300% increase in diabetes. IGF-1 emerged in this study as an important moderator of the association between animal protein consumption and mortality. Since wherever the protein went, IGF-1 was sure to follow, just like Mary and her little lamb. Um, so again, no such elevations were noted when the source of the protein was plants. So here's the thing that I tell women who come to me with a breast cancer diagnosis, and they're like, Okay, I'm, I, I'm listening to you, but doc, it's too late. I already have breast cancer. I've been living and eating this way my whole life. Like, it's like kind of done, right? Ho, ho, no, sister. So I love to tell them about this study. It's, it's one of my favorite studies because I think it is so incredibly powerful in its uh, promise for fast results. So 
watch this. They took 50 obese women, no, no cancer, just obese women. They measured their IGF-1, their IGF-1 binding protein level, and then they took their blood and they dripped it on a Petri dish blanketed with human breast cancer cells. Eh, a few cells died because they're alive, so their immune system's doing something, right? Then they were told to go away and they all ate a low fat. Oh, goodness, don't look at that slide. Low fat, 10 to 15% daily calories diet, high fiber, 30 to 40 grams per thousand calories a day. It's pretty, yeah, so you're eating 2,000, we're talking 60 grams. Quite a bit of fiber for our average American, which we'll talk about later. Whole food plant based diet and daily exercise classes. I'm kid you not, it's like sauntering for 30 minutes a day. That was exercise, right? So they go away and they come back. Listen to this. 12 days later, not 12 weeks, not 12 months, not 12 years, 12 days later, they come back and now IGF-1 levels are drawn, plummeted. IGF-1 binding protein, skyrocketed. Blood dripped on a fresh Petri dish of human breast cancer cells. 90% of the cancer cells died on the spot. It took less than two weeks to transform their blood into a cancer-kicking machine. And that is the reason why it is never too late for you. Mm. Two weeks and everything can turn around. It's kind, of like, it's kind of like you were born with someone blowing smoke in your face your whole life. You didn't know. You just, this is what air is like, right? How long would it take if they just stopped blowing the smoke for you to be like, huh, what's that? That's how forgiving a body we've been given. It's really quite phenomenal. And uh, I challenge anyone out there dealing with any kind of illness from cancer to autoimmune to high blood pressure to having had a stroke to just give it a two week try. <laughs> Do it, give it a three week try. You know why? Because there's the 21 day vegan kickstart app from PCRM. There and you so go. Three weeks. Um, but seriously, do it and see if you don't feel differently. And if you really want to be gung ho, do it before and after like cholesterol panel check, blood pressure check, sugar, hemoglobin, H1C check, A1C check. Um, powerful, powerful. And another study that drives the point home, if you're still not convinced is this, this is my husband. My husband always says, I think the, the Laren thing is the biggest reason to stop eating meat. So I would be remiss not to share the Laren thing with you. So there are people that live in Ecuador mostly, and they cannot process IGF-1. So guess what? They're, they all have medical dwarfism. They don't grow. But guess what else? No one with Laren syndrome in the history of the world has ever, ever had. Breast cancer, not just breast cancer, any cancer ever, except for one woman once had ovarian cancer in 2017. But seriously, that is astounding. You know what else they've never ever had? Diabetes, type two diabetes. So that implies quite resoundingly that IGF-1 is critical in the causation virtually all cancer and all type two diabetes. So if you take control of your IGF-1 by limiting or preferably eliminating 
your cell's exposure to animal protein and animal fat. Wow, what a difference that can make. And you know, it's, it's not about all in or all out. Just making more healthful choices at any given meal. So when I wrote, as Chuck said in the intro, the bestseller, Breast the Owner's Manual, I had to be right. So every time I wrote a fact, even if it was a fact I've been spewing for decades, I've been a doctor for 25 years, I would be like, well, maybe that stuff's changed or maybe it's different than it was yesterday. I would do research. I have 80 pages of over 1,500 scientific references because every fact was fact. It's just my personality and it makes me delightful to be married to. Um, so when I went in to be right about meat and diet, I just went into the science to be like, hey, the way I eat is the way to eat, of course. So then I went to prove it. And I largely had backed myself because I ate a ton of fruits and vegetables and also a ton of lean meat chicken, turkey, and fish. I never ate red meat. Since I was 10, I hadn't had any red or processed meat. Um, but, well, I take that back. I take it back. I had not had red meat. Processed meat, I thought turkey bacon was good. I thought, hmm, organic chicken breast, turkey breast slices from the deli section, that's good. Lean meat, right? And I was shocked. I was mad, actually, when I went into the science and found clear-cut evidence of this cellular response to animal protein and animal fat, because some of these studies were dating back to the 70s, 80s, 90s. Like, hello, I went to med school in 1992, so I hadn't heard people about it. And um, when, I, when I was overwhelmed was when I had read, and Chuck, you alluded to this study, about the red meat and processed meat. So this happened in July 2015. Um, the IARC, part of the World Health Organization, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, met in Lyon, France. There were 22 researchers uh, from 10 different countries looking at 800 epidemiologic studies simply to answer two questions. Does red meat cause cancer and does processed meat cause cancer? And what they said when they emerged from that analysis, was that processed meat, all processed meat, absolutely, definitively, is carcinogenic to humans, on par with asbestos and plutonium and cigarette smoke, so that things you call processed, I call processed, the IRC calls processed, you call friendly things, possibly, like hot dogs on a cookout and sausages, even turkey sausages. But ham, salami, pepperoni, all the deli meats, including my, I thought, so-called healthy organic turkey breast slices from the deli section, beef jerky, bacon. We call them yummy. The IRC calls them deadly. And I was so blown away by that because I missed out on that study too somehow, summer of 2015, until in 2017 I was writing my book and came across this. And the thing about the um, processed meat is, pro is the nitrates. So here's something I really want you to know because it's a sneaky little marketing gimmicky thing that, um, that the meat industry does. 
And what they will do is call, they'll put a little thing on your packaging that says, no nitrates added. And then there's an asterisk. And guess what the asterisk leads to? It leads to something that says, except for what is added naturally by celery. Okay, so what's happening here? Besides fat and sodium being uh, heavily involved in all the processed meats, the real harm is coming from nitrates. Technically, they're harmless until they shapeshift. And when they do, they become um, nitrosamines and nitrosamids when they're added, coupled to the amine or amide in meat. When you eat nitrates in plant form, they become nitric oxide, which is like your best friend. That dilates blood vessels, increasing blood flow to all of your cells. So nitrates in plants are good, but when you literally take that celery powder and put it in, you now are just adding the, what could have been a healthy nitrate becoming nitric oxide. The celery nitrate whoop, combines with the amine and the amide that's naturally in the meat, and it naturally forms a highly carcinogenic nitrosamine and nitrosamide. How carcinogenic? Let's go back and look at this study. This is powerful. Almost 200,000 postmenopausal women followed over 9.4 years. There was a 25% increase in breast cancer in red and processed meat consumers. Get this, let this sink in, comparing the highest versus the lowest quintile. 25% more highest to lowest. What if you had a vegan group in there? What if you had a vegetarian group in there? That's just the 10 bacon a week person to the one strip of bacon a week person. Like, that's pretty shocking, pretty damning evidence against, um, against processed meat. And so what I didn't conclude is the IARC said that red meat is on the probably carcinogenic to humans list, although we have absolute proof that it's carcinogenic to your colon or your rectum. So, um, and then I've got data on, on it increasing breast, breast risk. But uh, to be fair, there are also studies in breast that don't show the association. So it's, it's a little bit hit and miss sometimes with the, with the studies, but we know there's power in the dollar bill. So it's hard to know always which studies are truly looking at the, the, uh, the unprocessed data. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You really do. You have to go in and, and look at those disclosures. You got to look at who's publishing that study, who's behind it. Um, and a lot of that stuff is, it can be really eye opening. Um, it, it really, really can. That, that to me is just insane. That's a powerful study. I mean, 9.4 years, almost a full decade. I mean, you, you're talking about a very substantial difference there. Um, but I, I got to ask you here, kind of as, as we conclude this, this particular segment here, um, we talked a lot about red and processed meat. You, you hinted at, at chicken and, and things like that, but what about chicken? You know, specifically, a lot of people say, well, chicken's got to be healthy, right? How does chicken factor in here? I love this question. I want, you know, there's one thing I want you to understand, and that is heterocyclic amines and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Because what the, these are potent carcinogens that form on the surface of grilled and um, roasted meats. And when it does so on red meat, we've got some really strong data there. So if you ask 
people how they like their steak. Unless they're having steak tartare, they better say rare or medium rare because those who love it well done or burnt to a crisp are getting themselves some serious breast cancer risk. So wet bacon isn't burnt to a crisp, but for those who eat, um, this is on a weekly basis. If you have hamburger, bacon, or beef steak, you're increasing your breast cancer risk accordingly by 54, 64, and 121%. But women who eat all three of these meats, they have a 362% increased risk. Listen again. 362% increased risk of getting breast cancer over women who choose rare or medium well-done meat. Mm. Not over the vegan. Think about how high that cancer risk would be if you actually were completely avoiding the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and the HCAs that form on meat, okay? So there's some data from the beef. So now you're asking about chicken. Well, who eats chicken tartare? You could. You could. Um, I don't think it would be tasty and you might die from life-threatening uh, bloody diarrhea, but, but your choice. Um, chicken. Chicken's okay, right? All right, so we already talked about it. It's animal protein. It's going to elevate IGF-1. I just talked about it. Polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, HCAs, uh, heterocyclic amines. These are going to form, wait, I thought it was just grilled. I thought it was that burnt part. Like if I turn, peel off the burnt part, Doc, isn't that it? Okay. Uh-uh, sorry. Even your uh, 375 degree cooked over 30 minute boneless skinless organic chicken breast slow cooking turns what what is all this uh, PAH what it is is the combination of the creatine in meat with heat so your super grilled black chard that has a higher concentration yes but it's still there in the chicken over a slow cook because it's still creatine plus heat this, I researched for like, I think three hours before I finally definitively found the evidence that, because then I was like, wait, is it the char maybe? Because I, I do love myself some grilled broccoli and then it gets a little charred and it's actually kind of yummy. Yay! Plant char is totally fine. I mean, it's probably not a health food, but it's not harmful. It doesn't have the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. It requires the heat plus the meat. Um, so chicken has that. Chicken has FIP. So what is this? One emerging culprit behind cancer, really, I mean, high study associations between FIP and prostate cancer, but also in breast. It's a, it's a version of an HCA. It's a heterocyclic amine um, that's found in cooked meat, but it possesses the power equivalent to pure estrogen, just like right out of your ovary, to fuel both the initiation, seed maker, and the growth soil plenisher, um, not a word, soil fertilizer, um, to cause cancer to form and to grow. So interestingly, this FIP, it exists in the breast milk of meat eaters, but not in vegetarians. And if you stop eating meat within 24 hours, your FIP urinary excretion will go to zero. Again, forgiving body. Just give it a 24-hour break, and the fifth goes away. Pretty amazing. So what else about chicken? Um, okay, 1990. Check this out. I just say it because nothing's changed, and it's uh, been 30 years. 
in the absence, so this was in the International Journal of Health Services, they said, in the absence of effective federal regulation, the meat industry uses hundreds of animal feed additives, including antibiotics, tranquilizers, pesticides, animal drugs, artificial flavors, industrial wastes, and growth promoting, promoting hormones with little or no concern about the carcinogenic and other toxic effects. So how can scientists study what we're eating if they don't even know what we're eating, right? What, what ingredients labels on your chicken package? Nothing. It doesn't have ingredients. It's just chicken, right? So it should be wrong because there was this really interesting study where scientists uh, ground up chicken feathers because they were so desperate to try to find out what was being fed to that chicken. And you know what they found in that? They, they found illegal antibiotics like fluoroquinolones, but also the lab analysis of the chicken feathers, which by the way are ground up along with hooves and beaks and fed back to other chickens, alive chickens. Um, the feathers also had acetaminophen, Tylenol, Prozac, antidepressant, antifungals, an antihistamine, a sex hormone, and caffeine. All right, so you know, if chickens have a headache or they feel depressed and sleepy, I totally get it, but I think we should be told. So. The reason why not to eat chicken next is because you don't know why. <laughs> but yeah, here's the list. Illegal antibiotics. Oh, arsenic. Let me tell you about arsenic um, in a second. But they found all this stuff in the chicken feathers. But you know what else you're allowed to have in your chicken in America anyway is poop and bugs. Uh, most people don't realize that their meat, their chicken, is completely contaminated with viruses and parasites and bacteria, and it's entirely legal. Not illegal, legal. I borrowed this picture, by the way, from PCRM because I just love it so much. So, yes, our uh, meat is packaged with poop and all the critters inside of poop. Really? Yes, really. One in ten. Um, so this is according to the CDC. They annually test retail meat for pathogens. So this is your CDC at work. One in ten tested packages of chicken had salmonella, which can lead to serious cramps and diarrhea, which my husband had, by the way, very seriously before we became vegan. Um, and it completely wrecked his, he was ranked number five in the world in his age group in full Ironman. Um, and it wrecked his racing for five years, this salmonella bout that he had. Anyway, moving on. One in three chickens had Campylobacter, which can lead to permanent paralysis and Guillain-Barre syndrome. And eight in 10, like all the turkey, 80% of it had E. coli which is more cramps and bloody diarrhea. But okay, doc, what about organic? That's better, right? Um, well, they tested 98 chickens. This is in Europe, actually, where it's not even legal to sell meat with feces, by the way, where here it is. Um, but anyway, they, might, they do have lower food poisoning rates. Testing of 98 chickens in the Netherlands, uh, bought from 12 retail stores, oh, there it is, in the Netherlands, showed that 100% of the non or inorganic meat contained E. coli. Whereas the organic version had 84%. So yeah, organic is better. Go for it. I promised you a little arsenic tale. So chickens used to be purposely fed arsenic until after 72 years of doing so in, I don't know, five seconds ago, 2016, they had to stop. Oh, boo-hoo. They had to stop, but guess what? It was completely in the soil. So they put it in the poultry feed. Why or why would they do that? literally because you had to kill off the internal and external parasites on the chicken, like tapeworm and lice and mites and so on. And it also, side benefit, turned the chicken meat a pretty pink color. Okay, so what? Yeah, this is so what. 
207 preschoolers aged two to four years old in 2012 exceeded the arsenic to cancer risk ratio by over 100. And their number one source of arsenic was found to be poultry. So it matters. It does go from the chicken feed to the chicken to your mouth to your little baby's body. Uh, not, you think not so anymore, but thanks to dumping literally 72 years of 2 million pounds of arsenic into the soil, we've now contaminated our delicious uh, rice and other plants. They can even be arsenic-laced, uh, brown rice in particular. And my final reason why saturated fat, why chicken is uh, not okay, is saturated fat. So people falsely think... Um, Oh, well, I, I don't want to have a beef burger. I know that's bad for me with lots of fat, so I'll just have chicken. Well, be advised, one boneless, skinless breast of chicken has 19% fat, but if you keep the chicken on, it's 36% fat. And this is the breast, okay? We're not even into the thigh. Um, so there you have it. I'm anti-chicken. Wow. <laughs> Clearly, um, we still have fish to talk about, but I mean, I got I got to push pause here and go back to the Prozac thing. Like that to me, that is new information, and that is just mind blowing. I cannot, for the life of me, understand why there would be Prozac found in chicken. I understand that they are kept in horrific conditions, and God knows if I was living in them, I would definitely need it myself. <laughs> but what in the world is Prozac doing in chickens? It's actually there doing just what you would take it for. If the chicken's unhappy, it might not force its big fat body up on its tiny legs and waddle the one or two steps over to its feed to continue to eat and get fatter and to stay alive for the three weeks it needs to live until it's slaughtered. So it's literally just to keep it happy enough to stay alive to eat to then kill. Wow. That's wow. what the caffeine's about. Stay awake, baby. Keep eating. Gotta get fat. That is, that's, that is insanity. Honest to goodness gracious. Uh, very rarely am I sincerely stunned on this show. Congratulations. You have just done that. That is holy cow. Uh, okay. Uh, fish. Let's, let's talk about that here. Uh, this is another, a big one. A lot of people say, well, fish is a healthy food, right? It's not bacon. It's not hamburgers. It's not pork chops. It's fish. What's up with fish? Okay. Let me tell you what's up with fish. <laughs> I'm going to go to my slides. So you can imagine what, um, what I'm going to start with, and that is that it's an animal protein. So we're back at it, people. IGF-1 is there. You're, you're going to, unless it's sashimi, which people do eat, if you cook it, hello, your polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, HCAs, and FIP. But people think about their fish as like innocent and swimming around in this like pristine water. But instead, it's not. Even if they're wild caught, there's mercury in these fish. There's dioxins and PCBs. They're swimming around in these microplastics and microbeads. And they also have saturated fat and cholesterol. And they don't have fiber. So it's always a question of compared to what. So if you're like, hey, doc, I am not, not eating meat. I got to get me some meat-based protein. Okay. I, I'll work with you because I'd rather we then choose better, right? Better. So if we're going to be fish versus chicken, fish wins. Fish versus a beef burger, fish wins. Fish versus a black bean burger, fish starts to lose now, big time. So that's, that's the thing about fish. 
Wow. Okay. That is uh, interesting stuff. And, and that kind of gets me to wondering about keto and paleo. So I want to I put a pin in our conversation here and save that for the next show. Does that sound like a plan? Ends in. All right. Now, before we go, I do have to ask you, I know that you have uh, your Cancer Kicking Summit coming up here in 2021. Talk to me a little bit about what's going on. I am so excited about the summit. So for those of you who are interested, you just go to pinklotus.com and forward slash summit to learn more about it. But basically what I'm doing is a lot more than food and nutrition, although you can bet your bippy. (laughs) That's my dad. I have become my dad. You bet your bippy. I'm going to be talking a lot about food and nutrition because it's so foundational to your current and future health. However, so is how you think and how you move and how you relate to others in this world. So what we do is a deep dive into the soil of your life, rooting around in there, getting out a lot more than glyphosate and all the negative things that are keeping you from living your most fruitful existence. And then there are 10 seeds that I want you to plant into this newly replenished soil to birth the orchard of your life that is going to yield you the most fruitful, bountiful existence that you ever thought possible. And because of COVID, it's been bumped from this October to next October live at this resort in Palos Verdes. Absolutely gorgeous. Like just immediately transports you into a environment where you want to be serene and taking in all of the life changes. But We can also do it virtually from there, which we will um, in October. But then there's another virtual summit coming in April. So before October is April, turns out. And in April, I have a whole virtual uh, summit available where it's basically the live version, but without all of the energy of the room. But it's going to be fantastic and just packed. I mean, if you kind of get my style already, I'm all about having everything I say be backed by science with with uh, research and evidence to prove my point. It's not just my, my emotions about the issue. It's actually based and steeped in scientific evidence and how you can manifest your best life. So that's what I, yeah, that's, that's what I love about you is, is you are so rooted in science and you were talking about that when you were researching your book, it had to be right. It wasn't based on emotion. It was based on fact. And that, that is why I love having you so much on this show is because what you're saying it is the gospel. And I, I appreciate that very much from you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Dr. Christy Funk, you will be with us all month long. That's all the time that we have for it today. But again, go register for the Cancer Kicking Summit, pinklotus.com slash summit. Dr. Funk, thank you so much. Thanks, Jeff. We're not just doing this show because it's October and it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We are doing it because a quarter million women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year, and 115 are dying every day. We're also doing it for the 2,300 men who Dr. Funk spoke about that will also be diagnosed with breast cancer this year. We are doing it because we are saving lives. We are trying to keep families whole, and we are trying to keep people healthy. So we are going to have stories of inspiration and more conversations with Dr. Funk, more insight, more studies, including next week when we're actually going to be looking at two of the most popular diets out there right now and how they can affect 
your odds of getting breast cancer. We're going to be looking specifically at the paleo diet and the keto diet. And then a little bit later on this month, we're going to have food superlatives going to be crowding the best fruit to fight cancer and the best vegetable to fight cancer, the best seeds, the best nuts, legumes, and spices. We want to make that the healthiest award show of all time. We're talking about a red carpet event in your kitchen. It's going to be fantastic. Also that day, we're going to be handing out what is really essentially a lifetime achievement award for fiber. I'm telling you, that is one powerful, powerful nutrient. And you're also going to be hearing from women who have battled breast cancer and survived what they learned, how they succeeded, and how they are now paying forward the wisdom they gained during their journey. So we have a big month planned ahead and you can get a head start on everything right now by heading to letsbeatbreastcancer.org learning those four steps from our four-pronged approach take the pledge to follow those steps and when you do that not only will you be improving your health but you will also receive a free e-cookbook that is packed with cancer fighting recipes plus you can enter to win a grand prize pack courtesy of our great sponsors like Amy's and Vitamix. And I also want to take a moment to thank the incredible women and men who are lending their name to the Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign this year. So thank you, Alicia Silverstone, Mary Steenburgen, Ted Danson, Jasmine Leva, the director of the wonderful documentary, The Invisible Vegan. And of course, Dr. Christy Funk, thank you to all of you for banding together to help us eradicate this disease. Indeed, we are just getting started this month, so stick with us. This is just part one of four. So go ahead, take that pledge, and keep listening so that we can all beat breast cancer together. For everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. 